Welcome to the podcast of data and analytic in business. We will learn from the leading industry experts using data and analytics to solve the problems and create values in practice. We will also learn where the industry is heading to and how data and analytics will shape the industry in the future. Most importantly, how they are preparing their business for digital transformation and disruption in the future. I'm your host, Jason Tan, and thank you for listening. In this episode, we have Jyoti Rahili. Jyoti is the Chief Financial Officer for Asia-Pacific region of Landis & Gear, a Zurich-listed multinational company. Landis & Gear is a world leader in advanced smart metering solution for utilities. We start our interview about the volunteering experience of Jyoti in Kushal, India, and how did he get involved? Kushal, India supports women to have a say and take appropriate action for their wellness and well-being when pregnant. So make sure you check out their website and spread the word about this wonderful organization. I then asked Jordi about Landis and Gear and the works that they do here. This is where I learned about the meters and solution from the company that empower utilities company and customer around the world to improve their energy efficiency, reduce their energy costs, and contribute to sustainable use of resources. Equally, how this plays a role in building smart city around the world. Subsequently, I asked Jordi about his role as a regional CFO for the Asia-Pacific. Jordi shared his view on capital allocation on developing the digital infrastructure and making the best out of combining historical data and new data in the business. More than that, we also spoke about the appropriate access control of data and how the heads from different countries could learn from the collective knowledge and wisdom from each other. Finally, we spoke about the role of MNC CFO and how it is more demanding than before. Equally important, what are the different roles a CFO can play that is beyond the accounting works that they are traditionally involved in? If you are a senior executive operating in a single jurisdiction and always want to know the view of a CFO whose business and responsibilities span across multiple countries, this is the episode you do not want to miss. If you have any question for Jyoti or myself, make sure you send us an email or a message on LinkedIn. Last but not least, make sure you click the subscribe button before the interview starts so you will be the first to be informed on the latest episode on how business leaders run a high-performance organization using data analytics. I am your host, Jason Ten, and thank you for listening. Hello, 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 Jyoti. Welcome to the Analytics Show podcast. I'm super excited to have you here. Finally, we get to chat about this one. Thank you, Jason. Let's get this thing started live, as I always do. I know that the finance and accounting are your main area of specialization, but from my research, I found that you are currently volunteering in social service also. Please share with us about your volunteering experience for Kushal, India. Sure, you're delving into the hidden part of my life now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Kushal, Kushal uh, or Kushal Org or Kushal India or 
it's a wonderful concept. It's a social enterprise with the objective of ensuring pregnancy well-being. And what it does is, or it, what it aspires to do is to address the emotional, psychological, and uh, needs of pregnant women, and also offer social support to the extent it can. Now, when you ask me my experience, what Kushal, the whole concept is it sort of entails collation of data from various sort of sources, and then puts that in a, in a storytelling format to women. And that's shared in a very equitable way. So it makes it much easier for them to understand. And it's just that not just data. In fact, it's more than that. It comes to life. And that's the way. And now if, you, if you're sort of saying, what's my role? Yeah, obviously, I'm not an expert in any of these. But given my experience of having worked for the last 30 odd years, yeah, my interest is obviously to ensure that the organization grows in a sustainable way and whatever support that I can offer as a business executive, which is what I try and do. I'm just hoping that my role in the advisory capacity is, uh, is useful to Kushal and people of Kushal and the founders of Kushal. I love how you are giving back to the society. What made you associate with Kushal though? Well, going back, this whole Kushal and the concept of Kushal was conceived by a good friend of mine, Dr. Ghosh, who's uh, based out of the United Kingdom. And when he talked to me about it, he was already in it. I was very excited. I, I said, well, can I be part of it? So it's not a question of whether I have to do it. It's like, oh, I get to do it, you know? And I'm, I'm borrowing this expression from some other very famous personality, but it's not a got to do it. I get to do it. And that's how it started. And I thought, it's very sort of refreshing for me. I mean, it's not a huge ask in that sense because I'm not really involved in a day-to-day. But it does take a little bit of a few hours at the weekend, and that's fantastic. I'll make sure to share the link to the website of Kushal India so that people can check it out. And uh, they can- Yeah, I mean, for you and everyone that listens to it, kushalindia.org, it's, it's just it's fantastic. Go there. It used to be a blank page. We've come to a great distance. And of course, kudos to everyone that's involved. And it's just amazing how people just step forward to do it on their own. It's fantastic. And and I think of them, the amount of personal time they all invest in this project is just just beautiful. Fascinating. That is such a mission that you guys are really working on. Now, let's get into the professional life. Please introduce to our listener, to Lenis Enger and, and your role as the regional CFO there. Sure. Lenis Gear. it's a very, very old organization, or rather old company, so to speak. My role here is as a CFO for Asia-Pacific region. I'm based out of Sydney. Just the nature of the business and the industry that we are in, it does require a lot of presence, physical presence in different entities. So we are present in virtually most of the big markets in in Asia, other than, of course, Australia, New Zealand. We're in China, we're in India, we're in Singapore, Hong Kong, a little bit in Vietnam, getting into Thailand. So yeah, it's spread all over Asia Pacific. And my job is pretty much, as the title says, yeah, make sure that 
we grow the business in, in the right way and ensure that we keep to our promises to our stakeholders and shareholders. Wonderful. And I suppose as the regional CFO, you cover all of those, the major market that you just mentioned in the Asia Pacific, i.e. China, Thailand, Malaysia, Hong Kong, Australia, and New Zealand. Is that correct? That's right. I did. I think I may have missed out Malaysia, of course. We're there as well, yes. For my research, Lendis and Gear is... Did I pronounce it correctly? Lendis and Gear. I didn't realize that's that. right. It is. It is wonderful. It is. Lendis and Gear is an industry leader in energy management solution. Now, not only it produces the hardware like the smart meters for electricity, gas, and water, but it also provides software, analytics, and other services. So, tell us a little bit more about the smart infrastructure. Yeah, that the way you described it is right. As an organization, we do design and manufacture products. We develop software that goes with the products. It also offers, as an organization, we also offer data analytics. That is, again, part of the software extension. Because it's smart and because the nature of the product, it has to communicate. So communication modules and communication network, the product is built around such that we also take care of the communication. And then, of course, usually it's one full solution. So it's just not bits and pieces, but also putting, integrating everything together, including deployment. So as uh, our customers have a full solution to meet their needs, uh, rather than just one or two products, sometimes, of course, some customers do opt for parts, bits and pieces, but usually the, the entire suite of product is what we offer. Right. And that whole in smart infrastructure, would you say it is the really one of the key components for building a smart city? I think smart city has been a talk for many, many big players and also by all the council. I'm curious to know what sort of role does the smart infrastructure play in smart city? It's a good question. Yeah, it is. It, it starts off from the grid. So making the grid as smart as possible. And then you can get it closer to, uh, as you said, city. It could also be an enterprise, large enterprise. So you could use the whole concept of uh, smart infrastructure in any of these environments. But obviously, the bigger the scale, the more benefit you get and more optimization you achieve. Right. So by nature, the industry like you were just describing is rather data-intensive industry. Now, I can imagine there are a lot of data points that keep constantly coming in for analysis. So what are the major use cases of data analytics in the industry and for Lendis and Gear? Yeah, interesting question because it's, it's obviously very pertinent and obviously that's what the main objective of this whole podcast is, I guess, data. Now, from a Landis and Gear perspective, and I guess some of it could be and would be common for many other organizations as well. I mean, data come in different forms, right? I mean, you've got internal data that we normally generate and that, of course, we need. We look at the data to, to govern business to make decisions, et cetera, et cetera. Then, of course, you've got the end customer data, right? And that's a very sensitive matter because end customer data, you've got to like guard it as if you're guarding 
gold or hard money. Then, of course, you also look beyond. You've got partner data because these days and in any supply chain, you don't work in isolation. You don't do everything. You've got partners, right? So you have that. I mean, you've got data for partners. So to make sure that your supply chain is good, you make the right kind of a decision. And finally, we have and we track product-related, product-solution-related data because you want to know how your product's performing. You want to know whether you're measuring up to the warranty promises that you're making to customers, and obviously you want to exceed. You want to make sure your quality is absolutely perfect. So, I mean, these, these are, I guess, at a high level, you could argue that these are the major different blocks of data, and they all have their own as you say, use cases. Absolutely. I'm curious to know how this will change the energy industry and why the general public will benefit from this of the smart infrastructure. Yeah, it's a very, very pertinent question. Now, I did talk about product solutions, software, etc. But when you distill everything, what do we do? What we really do is we optimize the demand and supply of energy equation or inequation, as you may call it. You have an inequation, and you, it could lead to, typically in electricity, it could be a, bu- a brownout or a blackout, right? So our solution helps in managing that equation. So at any point in time, there is a, sort of a, an equation that you strike between the supply and the demand. Now, one of the reasons why, and to your base question, why is it very important? As you know, the demand keeps growing, right? And we're more and more, and if you just think of electricity as one energy source, forget about the gas and others, you've got EVs coming, electric vehicles coming in, and then you've got more and more products coming in, more and more, our dependency on electricity, just one, as I said, one source of energy, just keeps increasing. So one way of handling that is, of course, you continue to invest on the supply side, add generation. Now, when you do that, remember, that's not always very very useful or very productive from various points of view. I mean, you financially cripple yourself as a generator because, you, I mean, adding generating capacity is very, very expensive and very time-consuming. It's not that today you decide to put in a few millions or billions and it'll be effective in five, six months. No, it takes a long time. Also, it's very suboptimal because you might have a very high capacity and not have the demand. Because this is considered, think of it like an Airbnb in in a travel industry, right? You could put the same thing in, in electricity or energy space where, especially today, you've got centralized generation and then you have the entire growth of micro generation, which you call the distributed energy resources, if you call it, like you have rooftop as one example. You can have photovoltaic cells on your roof of the house. You're generating. So you're part of the generator yourself as a homeowner. You could be. Now, how do you put all of that together? You're putting these as if it's like a bank account. You're putting money in the bank, right? And sadly, we're not in a stage where you can just store them forever, We're not there yet, and therefore you have to find a middle ground. So what we try and do is make sure you optimize the demand and supply to a point 
where you don't have to unnecessarily invest more and more. And of course, what the additional thing that it does is it also puts accountability on different points. So you as a user, you know what you're using. You know, you get data on almost real, you can get data on almost real-time basis. And then you know what to do. So it also, in Australia, you've got this whole concept of power of choice. It's similar. So it's an extension of that. Now, are we 100% there? No, we're not there. But no industry grows in a matter of two months or two years. It takes a while for everything to settle down. And this is an industry that's been going on for many, many, many years. So it'll take a while, but I think we're progressing in the right direction. You talk about the power of choice for the listener who are in overseas outside of Australia. Can you please provide a little bit more context? What does that mean, power of choice? So it's a good, I mean, you could use the words to mean power of choice as, as consumer. You are empowered to decide what you want to do with uh, how you want the electricity to be coming into your home. That's one way of doing it. Of course, in Australia, it has a different connotation because there is a specific, from a regulatory point of view, it is called power of choice, which essentially allows, as a consumer, you have a choice to look at various retailers. Even if you compare with going back 15, 20 years back, where you were stuck with a company that brought electricity to your home, well, maybe even longer, you've got to go 20, 25 years, what this regulation does is to, as a consumer, you get the choice to decide whether I want to go with retailer A, B, or C. And of course, why would you do that? You do that because as you do for every other service or even product, you make the best decision based on what serves your interest the most. You could look at it purely from an Australian point of view, or you look at it just in a generic fashion. Now, power of choice is essentially you as a consumer, you have the power of choosing what you want to do in the sphere that it, you're talking about. I agree. Now, I want to shift the focus of the interview from the company Lendis and Gear into more of your role as a CFO working for a large multinational company as a regional CFO the way that you look at the company, the way that you look at the finance and making sure that data and analytics coming in to support you to make the right decision for the business growth. So my very first question for you then is, I think this is a, probably the question that faced by a lot of the uh, CFO. As a company, like you say, with more than 125 years of experience. So I guess it comes with a number of legacy systems. Now, has it introduced many challenges for the accessibility and the granularity of data in order for you to make a good financial decision in today's world? Sure. I mean, it's not just us. I think it's the same thing for any organization that's been around for a number of years. But again, it applies probably more to organizations that have been around longer in the sense that you go back 30 years or 35 years, you'll see data being captured in a particular format. Of course, none of, I mean, digitization of data as a concept didn't exist then, or maybe it did ex exist, but in a very small way. 
And then over a period of time, we moved from the other end to where we are now, right? So if you're talking of legacy data and the more recent data, which tend to be more digitized, then uh, yeah, there is room for both. And you cannot, I mean, it's like saying, ignoring the history and just looking at what's happening today. You, you have to have both. And for many organizations, and especially organizations of repute, you don't forget your history because you stand behind what you did 20 years back, right? So the access to old legacy data is very important. And of course, organizations sometimes find it difficult, but then you have to find a way to make sure that old legacy data is also available to you as you look forward to uh, to future years and also as you collate data from the uh, current environment. That being said, apart from digital transformation, does it put more pressure on you to upgrade the ERP system? I wouldn't say it's pressure, but what I would probably say is it makes the justification stronger. And when I say it makes the justification stronger, it just, at the end of the day, when you're running a business, you know, you have a finite amount of time and that's across all functions to spend on various aspects and various projects. And you normally, as it usually is the case, you only take the first five, six or seven projects, right? The others you say, okay, the turn will come, but let's wait for that for some more time. So what you just said, what it does, it just brings it forward. So I wouldn't call it a pressure. It's it's something we have to do, and it just a, becomes part of your DNA. Absolutely. Now, you like we talked about earlier, you are responsible for the APEC region. Now, what I think is easy to assign access to information or data based on the country, I'm curious to know what is your view on the access of data and analysis for your staff so they can prioritize and pursue the right business opportunity within their own territory. But at the same time, they can take advantage of the collective wisdom and learning from other regions. Well, let's parse your question in two parts. You're talking about information sharing. That's one part. The other part is, I guess, more about uh, the weight and the depth of the data that people have access to. Now, Jason, you know, and I'm sure everyone that's interested in data would know, data is, it can be very private. It is private. It can be very private, right? I mean, sometimes we do use and transmit data very loosely, but it's very powerful, right? And most organizations realize that and you build security around data. And when I say security, it's not just security from outside, those who are outside the organization. It's also ensuring that I don't have access to data that I shouldn't have access to, right? Now, in a normal organization, it's like a pyramid, right? Right, And without sort of meaning to sound hierarchical in nature, but the fact of the matter is, as you go up the ladder, the access or the access to depth and width of the data changes, right? So to an extent, that is one part of the element. The other part of element is you're talking about, as you said, different territories, et cetera. 
this is not a new challenge. I mean, this is this has been around for a long time. And of course, you could argue that there are silos between different markets, right, and different geographies. But at the end of the day, those silos are very, uh, they're not walls. So you, you do see a commingling of data, if I may use that expression. So there is a wider knowledge base that is available to people. So you sort of, you can take advantage of, as you say, collective wisdom, right? You get that information. And then, of course, based on, as you say, collective wisdom, it also goes back into the organization, be it designing new product, be it designing new solutions. You don't have to do everything right from the word, from the point zero to 100 for a particular market. You can have a band of commonality that cuts across all and have a thin layer on top that's specific to a particular market, if you can visualize that. So that bit really helps because then that sort of ensures that A, your your time required to design is shorter. It also ensures that the ability to support it is much better. You don't have to have five teams for five different platforms. You can have one platform and then you can have a much smaller team and you're much more efficient and you can respond to customers faster. It's, it's not just good for an organization that does it. It's also good for consumers, ultimately. Mm. How do you find to be practical of bringing the team from different companies together to share their journey in terms of the use of the data analytic or data to pursue the business goal, to improve the product and to service the customer? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly, I mean, that's probably one of the key objectives in any organization these days, especially those that are very serious about customer satisfaction, those that view the mission to be closer to customer and be reliable partner to customers or consumers. This is very important because, and our customers are also very smart these days. So you have a case in Hong Kong and some other customer might be sitting in Australia, New Zealand, India, China, wherever. They're aware of it. So these days, of course, people have that knowledge, people have that understanding So you've got consumers or customers who are well aware of it. And then we have got ourselves as as organizations in that area. We need to know that. We need to have that knowledge within the team to be able to meet the needs and requirements and expectations of customers. And what it also does is it creates, let's put it this way, a much higher degree of specialization within the organization because it exposes a particular subject matter expert to five different problems, not just a problem from a market or a geography or a sector. And it just widens the knowledge. So, you know, the first, the earlier question that you asked about data, and I said, well, data, you could also look at it from the width point of view and depth point of view. So it addresses that as well. Right, right. That makes sense. Now, one of the premises from speaking to you before is you touch on the this thing called contemporaneous data. Now, this is new to me. Would you please elaborate more on this and why it is important? Well, contemporaneous data is really, 
I'm not sure if there's a standard definition, but I, at least in the way I look at it is you have the legacy data, right? And you have an online data as in real time that you're generating. And then what I would say is the contemporaneous data. Now, the third one, the contemporaneous data, when I say that, I'm referring to data, but I'm also referring to context. Now, that to me is very important because data is a very dry thing. It's just dry. I mean, you look at it and you think that you've mastered it all. But if you don't put, I mean, it gets its heart and soul when, when you put in context, right? And that's what I mean by contemporaneous data. You might have a real-time data. You might have data that's just, let's say, a month old or even six months old. But once you put in the context, then it becomes contemporaneous to me then it's more useful. And that's what I actually mean when I say contemporaneous data. Experts might view it slightly differently, but at least that's the way I look at it. It is always important to have that context to understand the data because without the context, all of us would interpret that completely different. Now, the follow-up question I have for you then is, as you say, data is dry, you need context. But equally, at your level, you are constantly using the data and this number to tell a story because it is what the story that matters in order to be able to convince the stakeholder to take various action. What have you found to be working for you when it comes to tell a story to convince the stakeholders? It's a very difficult question. <laughs> I'll try and answer that. I'm not sure I have, I have the right answer to it, but I'll try and answer that. Now, we talked about data. We talked about context, right? And as you know, as you know I'm, when I look at my role as a, as a finance person, it obviously has evolved, right? I mean, it's no longer, it goes beyond just commentating on what has happened. When you're able to access the data, and when I say data, of course, not data in just one sector, it could be multiple. And then you're able to string them together, right, in a sensible, meaningful way of variables that are interdependent. And then you put in the layer of context to it, which is not just today, but could also be tomorrow as in short term and midterm as well. That is what it does. That's when you have a very compelling storyline. And you also play the role of kind of saying that you're addressing the future needs. You preempt a situation and you're also preparing to have a plan of action, so to speak. Right now, are you or are we 100% correct in every such instance? Probably not. But you're better prepared because even if you have, even let's say you based on your data analytics, based on your analysis, based on the context, based on looking at few other variables that you believe are connected to the problem that we're trying to address. And then you look at the market situation and make a judgment call. You may not be 100% right because it's very difficult to be 100% right. You have to be Lord Almighty to be 100% right. But you're roughly right, so to speak. 
the fear here is, and the warning here is, you don't want to be precisely wrong. You want to be roughly right. Now, you can also be precisely right, but that's a bonus. <laughs> On that mindset of roughly right versus absolutely right or uh, precisely right. Jason, there's another, another side to it. You've got to start from precisely wrong, roughly right, and precisely right. Yes. And I love how your take on how you want to be roughly right and you feel like you don't necessarily to be precisely right all the time. How would you convey that sort of mindset to your staff that it is okay to be roughly right because getting 100% right is not necessarily correct all the time. And sometimes we feel like we are precisely right by looking at the data and then because of our own bias of the data, we will find the data to support us to be precisely right. But that is because we look for what we want it to tell us rather than looking at the bigger picture and being honest about it that we are actually only roughly right. Am I making any sense? <laughs> no, you, you are, Jason, and it's a, it's a very loaded question. And, and I, um, with all humility, I have to say that, like many of the questions that you're asking, I, I don't know if I have 100% accurate answer, but what I can say is, and this is what I'm saying, or what I'm about to say is not something that, I'm not the first person to have thought about it. It's, it's been there for, for many, many years. We have to realize, and because of everything we talked about, access and privacy, et cetera, in an organization, whichever function that you look at, certainly in my finance function, certainly, you have an asymmetry of data access. Not everyone has access to everything. So let's say if if you're asking a team to do an analysis, they have access to a certain width and certain depth, not beyond. You might have greater width, deeper and wider access possible, right? So there is automatically an asymmetry of information because someone who is doing the analysis comes up with what he knows, right? Or what he has access to. As senior managers, as leaders, our role is to make sure not to run with it, but to do that value add. Otherwise, we will not exist. And I mean, if if you don't do that value add, if you don't recognize the fact that there is that asymmetry which is built into the organization, in any chain of command, you, go, you will have that. And that's for good. It's not to make your job look more important. It has a certain reason why it is there. And data privacy goes deeper into the whole psyche of why it is there. So I'm not sure I'm answering that question, but that goes to the core of what you asked me. I agree. I think we should also take into the consideration of the asymmetry data access to the data. And that is really important because otherwise it is not fair to make such a judgment call <laughs> on what I just said as well. It is. And, and if you're talking about the human aspect, then of course, you cannot just, I mean, somebody, you've given somebody a task and that person comes to you after hours of analysis with, with an answer or a set of recommendations. And then, you, I mean, of course, the leader's role is to make sure you look at it from the vantage point that you have, make that call and take it forward 
But at the same time, you also owe to that individual to make sure that that person understands why that outcome was not, did not go forward exactly in that form, but you had to modify it based on certain information that you had or based on certain things that you could foresee, but the other person could not. And that's just not it in the hierarchy. It can also happen in when you go into multidisciplinary sort of interfunctional uh, approaches as well, because you might take a certain view and then you talk to R&D or product management, and they might give you a different perspective. I agree. And I think a good example that I could think of is uh, when my staff talk to me about the search engine optimization, I have a high level view or understanding, but certainly I don't have the detailed understanding that she has been accumulating. So often I would listen to her thought and her explanation of why we are not doing what I thought we would be doing. <laughs> I would gladly accept of her recommendation. Exactly. That, that's something you, I think that's a skill that you pick up over a period of time and figure out where you think you need to put the weight of your thumb or where you don't. <laughs> that's a nice thing. What do you say? Can you say that again? Put the weight of the thumb to tilt the scale and where you don't. Ah, okay. That's a nice one. Love it. Now, moving on, my next question for you is, as an MNC multinational company CFO, now you have seen the rise of technology over the last three decades in multiple industries worldwide. I'm curious to know how much the role of the CFO has undergone a transformation in recent years. Has it changed much compared to 20 years ago? Yeah, 20 years is recent, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's think of it. I mean, okay, If as far as memory goes, you could see, you go back to, I haven't been a witness to all the changes, but having read and you get this impression that over the last 60, 70 years, or thereabouts, you've seen, well, you can start off with the rise in semiconductors, historically speaking. Once that happened, you saw the coming of personal computers, PCs, right? It became a you know, big thing from zero to millions, right? Then um, you had the telecommunications revolution, right? Then you had the great internet boom. Oh, yes. Yeah. Right. I mean, they all. I mean, you, you can sort of almost visualize them. Then you had the the social media explosion. Well, we're still having that. It's it's not come to an end, but you know we're in that age, and now we're now looking at data, the explosion of everything to do with data. You, know, you talk of data lake, data mining. You talk of data on prem, in the cloud. I mean, n number of things. So all of these are happening. So they all have a bearing, and as as a finance professional, obviously we are forced to. I mean, you don't have a choice. You're forced to rely on more and more technology. Technology is part and parcel of what you do. You cannot run away from it, right? And then it forces you. You have to have the skill. You must have the ability to process, analyze lots of data without losing your anchor point. That's important. You must have your anchor point. What do you want? What are you looking for? Don't forget that. So that's a skill you have to pick up. And that's why today 
If you go back 30, 40 years back, uh, CFO was normally a chief accountant, heavily steeped in accounting training, which is nothing wrong, which is great. But that's the, today you see so many organizations, they have CFOs who are trained engineers and they might even be sort of having done course in history in political science, economics. And again, it's not to say that the domain of accountants has been invaded by others. It's not that. It's just that accountants have also moved in. I mean, you see accountants in IT role. You see accountants going into marketing, so on and so forth. So it's very, there's a much wider and busier mobility of different specializations. And you see that in finance function as well. I mean, today the business values um, CFO not as an aggregator of information, right? I'm not suggesting 20 years back, CFOs were just aggregators, not, but there was more value given to aggregating information. Collating data was also an art then, but today it's very simple. Collating data is very simple. Now, it's another matter whether you pick the right data or not. That's an art, but, and obviously you need to commentate. There's no question about it. You need to commentate on, what has happened, be able to explain what has happened because that's that's important. But what is more important is to be able to execute as part of business, to be able to forecast, be able to plan. That's more important today. And remember one thing that technology has done is the market barriers have become much smaller. 30 years back, 45 years back, you had a good, strong brand name. You've been in the business that got you through for many, many years. Today, you are as good as what you are. Even our company, we're as good as we deliver today. We can go back and say, yeah, we've been around 125 years, thereabouts. But they say, yeah, when consumers will say, okay, that, that was history. What are you doing today? What are you going to do tomorrow? Same thing in my earlier job when I was with uh, Lucent Technology, which is a progeny of AT&T. I mean, Bell Labs was just, you read any of the books written by some of the Nobel laureates, you'll find reference to Bell Labs. That's what Bell Labs was. It was the ultimate temple of research. But again, I mean, at the end of the day, that's history. What you do today is more important. And that's what the business values. What do you do today and what you're doing tomorrow? So ability to execute, Ability to forecast, ability to plan, and ability to collaborate. That exceeds everything else. That's a primary requirement now. And that is the, you asked me, what's the big change? That is the big change. Would you say that's the way you see the role of CFO of the future is? I, as a second in charge, is about execute, plan, and strategize from the finance perspective. It's sort of difficult for me to, who would have thought in 1960s would go from semiconductor to talking about social media? Nobody knew that. I wouldn't make a fool of myself by predicting, but that is definitely the trend. They, um, you'll have far greater mobility in future. I think we're all getting trained. Well, we do get trained in our areas, chosen area of specialization, that's for sure. But I think the whole concept of education and training 
and the demands of our future employers, so to speak, would be, should be, and would be very different. I mean, you don't have to be an accountant. You don't have to be an accountant to be sitting in that position. And you can be an accountant and be a product designer as well. Vice versa. Yeah, certain things, of course, are regulated. I mean, if you're not trained in surgery, you cannot perform surgery because that's a, that would be a problem for many. Uh, but if you keep that few sort of exceptions out, I would think there would be far greater mobility. Speaking of that greater mobility, and also, as you point out, like in certain profession, like medically, obviously one has got to be trained, right? Would you say that it's actually not a bad thing for people to come from different backgrounds, to come from different academic backgrounds, to come from different trade backgrounds in various industries, because they could perhaps provide a new, fresh idea and feel fresh thinking to the organization rather than follow the straight line. You're spot on, because that's at least when I say spot on, I'm I'm making a judgment on what you said based on my understanding. So I, I obviously don't represent billions of people on God's planet. But uh, from my point of view, yeah, that that's very, the whole concept of getting the context right comes from that angle. And you're obviously not looking at, I know we're talking of diversity, et cetera. So diversity of view is very important, right? And as you said, specialization in different areas mobility of functions, that brings it that element of context, because at the end of the day, if you anchor onto the context well, if you have the ability to, to read, analyze, collate data well, string them together, at least from a finance point of view, you're, you certainly have a very, very relevant and demanding sort of fulfillment of skill sets. That's for, yeah, there are other functions as well, but those are, those are, important too. I'm not suggesting they're not important, but you can. I mean, it's, it, and again, this whole concept of mentorship, nobody's a champion, right? Nobody is perfect. Sometimes you get mentored by somebody who's senior to you. Sometimes you get mentored by somebody who's even junior to you or next to you, or I get mentored by my kids all the time. <laughs> <laughs> you learn and, um, that's the way it is. I agree. I agree. I think it's so important to understand and to have that mindset. Now, as a regional CFO, you manage and run the business for different countries in APEC. My question for you is, what advice would you give to the top executive if they want to take their business outside of Australia and be successful in the whole of APEC? That's a very heavy-duty question. Now, I mean, I don't know why Why top executives won't go to McKenzie and company instead of listening to me, but I can, I can certainly... Uh, you can certainly share your I experience. Can my experience and my views, and uh, they're not necessarily 100% accurate, but there are domain-specific, do's and don'ts, which of course, um, people who are in their respective areas and domains, they will know much better than I do. But yeah, having said that, I've, I've been in international business, some form or the other, trade and commerce for more than 30 years. So I do have certain appreciation. And what I would certainly say is the question when you go to the whole of, if you just typically talk of APAC, I mean, these are more 
do's and don'ts rather than solution or it's not a these are not silver bullet this is not a silver bullet to get you success but you never compromise on clean and compliant way of doing business this whole concept of especially when you go from let's say from australia to other some of the other countries which probably have a who are lower down in the cpi index so to speak right corruption perception index i think that's what it stands for the general kind of, okay yeah you know business is done differently in those countries you just, you just to be you have to be part of them i don't agree and we should never do that as business leaders if you're getting into this we have to hold our own we have to be seen as a clean organization regardless of which organization which flag you fly doesn't matter that's very very important because when you are an outsider into a new market remember you, you people are looking at you and they expect you to be different right you go to another country you you are expect and you're coming from country a to b you expect it to be different that's normal so you don't have to make the effort of saying that okay i'll i'll compromise everything i'll just just go don't don't do that i think that's that's one mistake you've seen uh people getting to trouble in different countries for and then they plead guilty and it's just don't do it that to me is absolutely big due to me do absolute do or or don't sorry being straight being clean being compliant is perfect people will give you premium for it every market doesn't matter how where they stand on the cpi it does not matter and i can tell you having been in in trade and commerce different countries over 30 years that pays it gives you back that's one the other thing sort of warning is and i for as a cfo i know and i can say that standardization increases productivity productivity goes up your cost comes down you're more efficient da 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 right that this, we know that it's it's i'm not saying this it's a, not a novel concept everybody knows that and as a cfo that we try and do that but having said that especially when you to your again the question of successful in the whole of apac how do you when you go out there stay away from shoehorning certain aspects from one place to another now the key word here is shoehorn right you have to appreciate that every market has a different requirement it does not necessarily mean you run 15 different processes it doesn't mean that but it also does not mean that you forcibly put something into a system where it, it's not a fit because it's it's just going to blow out or it's going to reject it so it has to be it has to be a very nuanced approach and it does need some skills it's it's good to have a templated solution absolutely right but it's helpful but you've got to be very open to understanding the nuances of what the local needs are what that market needs and whether you need to make some changes so to me these two are at a very high level very very critical i mean the others yeah i mean i think everyone i won't comment of course there are different as i said domain specific do's and don'ts absolutely localization compliance and clean those are the keywords that i pick up now this almost bring us to the end of the podcast interview now these are the two question that i have for you number one 
What is your most important first principle? In my role, whenever such a question is asked, I look at things from two perspectives. I look at midterm, long term, and I midterm operational, which is operational is currently. So when I look at to answer your question, the midterm, long term point of view, the first and the foremost principle is build and retain credibility. Absolutely. Okay. Then you do the the operational or the sort of first principle as applicable to current environment is context is important. You have everything you ha- need, you have information, but context is very, very important before you get into decision-making. So to me, these are, you call it first principle, but these are first principle in two different domains. One is midterm, long-term, one is operational current. Thank you. What is one book that you have read and thought it would have been better for your younger self to have? Well, if you ask me this question, if you had asked me this question three years back, I would have probably given you a different answer. If you asked me this question five, six years later, I would probably give you a different answer. But and that's the beauty of you asking me a question today. <laughs> so my answer is, my answer is, I read this book called In Defense of Liberal Education. Why do I think I would have, would have, or should have read this book? Was written in I think 2014, 2015. So it's not a very old book, but then. If somebody had this put this book maybe 30 years when I was in university undergrad or something like that, and the reason I say is this book addresses a very important aspect, which is you can be trained in liberal studies or liberal arts and yet be very analytical. The whole concept of us pursuing only those professional curriculums, right, is not necessarily correct. And I... I regret not having done more of history and other subjects, which I probably love doing now. And that's why when you said, well, what would you love to have read many, many years back? I would have, because that would have opened my brains and I would have said, okay, can I also do this on the side? Because that's very enriching. And I don't know, if you get a chance, do read it. It's actually written by Fareed Zakaria. And uh, yeah, it's not a very thick book, but it's it's very nice and it lays out why it's important and why that side is very, very critical. And of course, there are examples galore there in terms of people and personalities and characters that are very, that have been very successful in life. And they've all been trained in liberal arts. So the whole theory that you only have to be an accountant, a mathematician or an engineer, etc., to be good in analytical skills is faulty. You can be a historian or whatever and be very good in analysis. And that's what you're looking at the current situation demand. So, yeah. I think I support and I practice that theory. But at the same time, I am always fascinated by the Japanese culture in doing one thing and doing one thing right. So literally, you could have a sushi chef training for 20 years to become the master of sushi. So I have a lot of respect of that. But at the same time, I know I am supporting this, the other theory. So I still find myself to not know how to reconcile these two very different philosophy and these two very different thinking that I have equal respect, but how to reconcile them together. 
It's a valid argument. And that's why I said, I mean, if you'd asked me the questions five years back, I probably would have given you a different answer. Five years hence might have a different answer. The reason I like this whole concept is you can train yourself in an area that you want to be. It does not necessarily mean you shut out everything else. That's really what it is. You, you can be. You can, you can even be a historian and be a great sushi chef. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't stop you. Perhaps reading the history would help them to do the sushi in different ways. Just like how some of the sushi chefs, they tried to do the Edo era of the sushi, which is like two or three hundred years ago. Fair enough. But again, the point, I think the most point in the book is don't compel a young person to get into an area because that is deemed and seen as professionally rewarding. I mean, if you want to be a sushi chef, fine, but you don't necessarily get pushed into, oh, you have to be an actuary. No. So or different concepts, but I think the, it's a wonderful read. It's, it's not a very big, a thick book. It's a good read. It's always useful. I will certainly look it up and I'll make sure to pop in the link to that book where to get it on the exact book on the post and the, the write-up as well. Now, this brings us to the end of this podcast interview. Uh, Jyoti, thank you so much again for sharing your view as a regional CFO for uh, MNC, how data and analytics are used from your perspective as well as uh, some of those management advice that you or leadership advice that you personally have experienced and preach and use at the same time ladies and years well i appreciate your time and thank you thank you so much thank you thank you jason 